Are you tired of being told what to think and how to act? Well, you are not alone. In case you haven't realized it, you have an internal GPS. It knows all you need to know about how to live your life. So it's about time you stopped letting the media and the government tell you what is true for you. In fact, it is exactly that time. It's time to think for yourself. And here to make sure you're doing just that is your host, mediator, author, and lawyer, Carol Gold. Hi, it's Sunday, January 8th. I'm Carol Gold, and welcome to Think for Yourself. You know, oftentimes I think that we think that other countries around the world look to the United States for innovation, for guidance, sometimes even for historical perspective. For example, in how to form a constitutional republic. But that isn't always the case. Sometimes if we're open-minded and we pay attention, it's possible to look at countries that seem almost inconsequential to anything we might need to know here and yet to be startled by what we find. I've had such an experience recently because I'm reading the autobiography of Benjamin Netanyahu, the now recently re-elected Prime Minister of Israel. Having served two or three prior terms, he's now been re-elected. And in his autobiography, which I will say generally is a rather remarkable book, his life story is remarkable, his family's life story is remarkable, and the innovations and the changes that he has brought to Israel during his several pre, uh, prime ministerships is rather remarkable. And so I want to just go over a couple of things that I've read in the book that either shocked me or enlightened me. And I think they're of interest or should be to almost everyone. Certainly everyone who's concerned about what's happening now here in the moment in the United States. I want to particularly look at somewhere around 1999 when he lost actually the bid he made to be the prime minister and he was basically coming off of that campaign and that failed election. And I'm going to read you about, well, I guess it's about two pages of what happened to him because when I read it, I think you're going to suddenly say to yourself, this sounds eerily familiar. And at the end of it, I'll tell you not only why it seems familiar, but how I think the, th the familiarity occurred. So here it is. On election night at Tel Aviv's Hilton Hotel, I had prepared my concession speech in advance, along with the resignation paragraph, which I shared only with Sarah, his wife. When I delivered it, many in the crowd began to groan, some wept, and I thanked them for their support and went off in the sunset. Sarah and I owned an apartment at Jerusalem's Gaza Street and Sarah's tiny apartment in Gavatayim and pretty much nothing else. One journalist gleefully noted that as, quote, as Arafat exits Gaza, Netanyahu enters it, end quote, meaning that one of his apartments was near that section of Gaza. Here's the important part where it begins. At 11 a.m. on October 20th, 1999, the police knocked on the door of our Gaza Street apartment. The press had been alerted in advance. Camera crews were arrayed in rows in front of the entrance. 
It was later said that the female police officer in charge had had her hair done earlier in the morning for the occasion. Quote, this is a court order for a search of your apartment, she told us. Can you come back later and be done before the children return from school, Sarah asked. Nope, it has to be done right now. Please step aside. Sarah held them off until our lawyer arrived. The police proceeded to comb the apartment, stacked with as-yet-unpacked boxes from our three years' stay in the Prime Minister's residence. A few days earlier, a leading newspaper had published a fake story that we had taken valuable official gifts given to the Prime Minister that belonged to the state. On this flimsy of canards, the police were now subjecting us to a humiliating publicized search. They combed every part of our apartment, emptying cupboards and bookcases. Nothing was spared. They found nothing. Now, this goes on in detail to talk about the rest of that search and how it played out in the left-wing controlled Israeli newspapers. In the end, it was a lot of nothing, although it was followed up by a year of investigations of Netanyahu and his wife, harassment of them both and their children, a public display in an effort to pin some impropriety on him or her, which ultimately they were unable to do. Now, before I tell you the link to the familiarity, because as I was reading that, I immediately thought of what happened to Donald Trump when they raided Mar-Lago and searched every part of his home and came up with, so far that I'm aware of, nothing of consequence. What is so interesting about it is that in the book elsewhere, Netanyahu talks about how the Democratic Party, particularly in the Clinton administration, actually sent James Carville and other Democratic political operatives to Israel in an attempt to try to make sure that Netanyahu was not elected. And in fact, when he was later elected, after all of the efforts that were made in the Clinton administration to try to stop that, Bill Clinton actually called him to congratulate him on the win and said to him, despite everything we did, you won. So it was an admission of our attempt to interfere in a foreign country's democratically free elections. If they did it, they being the Democratic Party and the Clinton administration did it in Israel, I have no doubt it was done here. But here's the other part of this that is so interesting to me. The same people, the same bureaucrats and some of the same cabinet members who were in the Clinton administration went on to be in the Obama administration and reappeared in the Biden administration. It is my observation and intuition when I read this that they remembered what they had done to Netanyahu back in 1999, the assault on his home, the false allegations of having taken government documents, the public spectacle of the search, the year of investigation that went on following it, the leftist newspapers that harassed he and his wife and made all sorts of accusations, and when it was turned out to be nothing, never retracted 
or acknowledged their complicity in all that had happened. Those same people are now in the Biden administration, who were in the Clinton administration, who admittedly attempted to stop Netanyahu earlier in his career from being elected. And I believe that that was the playbook they opened back up under Biden to go after Trump. The coincidence and the way in which it was done are way too similar for me to have not been connected. That's number one. Number two, on a non-political, but on on a more economic and maybe partially connected front, both political and economic, when Netanyahu first became prime minister, Israel had had an entire history since its refounding in 1948, had an entire history of being a socialist country where all big industry and social services and the like were managed, owned by the government. There was very little private sector entrepreneurship, if any. And Netanyahu realized that the future of Israel, in order to bring it into the top few countries in the world that had significant GDPs and that were ranked among some of the most productive and some of the most economically successful and technologically advanced countries in the world, which Israel was far from being, it was at the bottom of that list when he first ascended to the prime ministership. He knew that he had to bring free market, he had to bring capitalism to the economic structure of Israel. And he spent several administrations doing just that. And the result was, in fact, that Israel today is ranked, even in advance of England and France and some other first world countries, ahead in terms of its uh, monetary stability, in terms of its technological advancement, and in terms of its intelligence, meaning its military intelligence. What I gleaned from this was some of what Netanyahu says about that very issue. He says that, quote, With few exceptions, state-controlled companies were a drain on the economy, requiring regular injections of taxpayer money to keep them afloat. Typically, they had an inflated workforce, inflated management, and inflated salaries. Almost invariably, their productivity was low, and they blocked productivity in other sectors of the economy by strikes and poor services. So when I was reading this, I was thinking about how we here in the United States have always been that free market, capitalistic, economic system or financial system. And that what the Biden administration has done, along with the World Economic Forum's globalist look at how countries ought to be run, is to enter into more and more of these public-private partnerships, as they're called, which is really just government getting into bed with the private sector and ultimately controlling that sector through regulation and through the sheer force of the federal government. And so 
If you look at how Israel moved from a lowly ranked country in terms of GDP and uh, financial stability and technological advancement to one of the top countries in those categories in the world, what you realize is that when you read Netanyahu's biography, he did it by moving away from government interference in business. And so we're moving in the wrong direction. The Biden administration, in conjunction with this globalist approach of the World Economic Forum, to sort of marry government to the private sector, to the tech industries, to the banking industries, um, to the um, financial industries, this is totally moving in the wrong direction. Because as you and I all know, whether it's the post office or any other government agency that you need to talk to, whether you need to reach Social Security or you need to reach, as I said, you need to reach the post office administration or you need to talk to the IRS, pick the government agency, EPA, pick the government agency that is easy to deal with, that is efficient, that is doing the job in the best interest of the citizens of the United States. I think that what we invariably see is that the more bloated and the more government control of that bloat, the less efficiency and the less benefit to the public. And so, again, reading Netanyahu's autobiography, it's become really clear to me what the successful path looks like. He, in fact, was modeling what he was doing in Israel pretty much after the United States. And now, as I said, ironically, we are moving in the wrong direction with the government trying to take over everything. Medicine, look what happened with COVID. The energy sector, look what's happening with natural gas and coal and diesel. The government is is attempting to control every aspect of our lives. And this is not only a dangerous path to go down, It's also a historically guaranteed failure, ultimately, because government doesn't breed. You know, it makes me think of something. Back when I was in my late 20s, I worked for a political campaign for the mayor of the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And after he was elected, I was appointed to the revenue department. I had worked on his finance committee. And then when he was elected, I was appointed to work in the revenue department of the city in the delinquent tax section, particularly where they were handling uh, bankruptcies as well. And I uncovered early on in that appointment some corruption in the revenue department. And so I went to the mayor's chief of staff, who I knew well from having worked with him on the campaign, and I said to him, look at these documents I found. Clearly, there's corruption going on in the revenue department. And he thanked me and said, we'll look into it. Within a matter of days, I was relieved of my position. My desk was moved into literally a closet. My phone was disconnected, and so it was on my desk, but it no longer worked. This was pre-mobile phones. And I was given no work. I sat in that, quote, closet for about three days before I went to visit someone. And the person I went to visit was, at the time, the largest Democratic donor in the United States. He lived in Philadelphia. 
He had a private company that did work contractually for the federal government. And as I said, he was the largest Democratic contributor in the country. He was a personal friend of my family's, my father in particular. And I went to see him because he was aware of the work I had done on the Democratic uh, election campaign. He was aware that I had been appointed to the Revenue Department. And I went to see him. And I said to him, look at what happened. And I related the facts to, relayed the facts to him as I just told you about having uncovered the corruption and turning it over to the mayor's office. I said, and now look, I have no job fundamentally. I have a job, but I have nothing to do. And he said, I don't know why you'd want to work for government anyway. Government punishes productivity where the private sector rewards it. Come to work for me which I did. The moral of this story is anyone who's in private enterprise, and by the way, Netanyahu never appointed anyone to his finance ministry as he was moving Israel out of socialism into capitalism in the free market, who had not been in private sector business before. He didn't appoint anyone who hadn't ever run their own business and knew what it was to successfully function in the private sector, because that's what it takes when you're in government. And that's why Donald Trump was able to turn this country around. And that's why we're in the mess we're in, because the people who are in Washington, for the most part in the Biden administration, have never had a private sector job. They have never been in business. They have mostly never even been skilled in the fields in which they now oversee. For example, Pete Buttigieg, Federal Transportation Association. So... As I said, reading this book has been enlightening and it's allowed me to connect some dots to understand that the long reach of what we call the deep state goes well beyond the United States. We all know that we have tampered in third world country elections, but I never knew until I read this book and made the connection the extent to which we've tampered also in democratic countries and the extent to which that tampering has been turned inward recently, beginning with the beginning of the Trump administration. I guess the takeaway from all of this, and there's, there's so much more in the book that relates to the United States, but I'm time constrained here. So I guess the takeaway of the book is that we have to be open-minded. We have to understand that sometimes we're the head of the snake. We have to understand that history can be instructive, that when we ignore the facts and ignore the truth and don't connect the dots and instead fall for the propaganda, fall for the easy answer, we do so at our peril. I'm hoping not so much that the Republican Congress will make a difference because as I heard Mark Levin, the radio host, say this past week, no matter which party, Washington can't fix Washington. I think there's truth in that because the corruption is in both parties. I hope that we actually are successful at organizing a convention of states under Article 5 of the Constitution and implementing some amendments to the Constitution through the Convention of States that will improve upon 
the system that we have right now. Because I believe it was Winston Churchill who said, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried, end quote. Maybe the United States is the worst country in history, except, of course, for most of the others that have ever existed. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Gold. I'll be back here again next Sunday. And until I am, by all means, think for yourself. Carol thanks you for spending your valuable time with her. It is her mission to empower you to remember how smart and capable you are. Be sure to check out Carol's website, carolgold.com. That's Carol with an E, gold.com. Please leave a review and subscribe here so you'll be alerted to Carol's next podcast. Until then, above all else, remember, it's time to think for yourself.